When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to DI Spy, the weekly podcast which uncovers what's really going on in the world of diversity and inclusion. I'm Dr. Julie Humphreys. I'm Natasha Whitehurst. And in today's episode, we're exploring loneliness in the workplace. And we are joined by Anne Cowell-Smith. Anne serves as a founder and chief executive officer of Reflection Point and is an expert at McKinsey. Welcome, Anne. (laughs) <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. And I was some years back an expert at McKinsey. I'm not anymore. Oh, I I feel like that that has to stay though, right? Like once you've certified, like you're up there. You're up there. You're Forbes. You're you're McKinsey. Like take the status. <laughs> yeah. So um, you've written numerous articles, and which we really want to talk to you about. Um, so we're just going to take each article um, alone, if that's okay, because there's so much to unpack. So the article that we're going to talk about today is um, an article that you wrote for Forbes, and it was called "Loneliness May Be as Dangerous as Smoking." Here's why employees employers should care. Um, so before we get really into the article, can I ask why you wrote that? So I have, for the last 12 years or so, been running an organization that is really focused on the power and the importance of connections in the workplace, right? Because if you think about it, everything we do at work, we spend many, many hours there. Everything we do at work is powered by the ways in which we feel a sense of belonging, the way we feel that our our words and our contributions are valued, and the ways in which we can navigate the workplace and and find the people that we work best with and also who can help us work together to solve our problems. And so I've always been fascinated by the fact that the workplace has a tendency to think about human connection and social connection as an afterthought, much the way we think about soft skills as an afterthought for hard skills. You know, there's this sort of sense of we're here to do this work. We have to get the work done. We have to count um, how we're doing. And oh, by the way, if we get along, that's great. But, you know, it's not something we focus on every day. And I think that's backwards. I think that is fundamentally backwards, that we are living in times where, um, you know, the pandemic has turned us upside down. Um, We have unbelievable kinds of levels of loneliness and isolation in the workplace. I think just before we got on the call, I looked up to see what the most recent surveys have been saying. And there was a global um, Society for Human Resource Management report that said, 82% of employees globally have reported feeling lonely at work. And how do we do our best work if we don't feel in any way connected to the other people that we work with? And so at the core of this idea is really the crux of whether or not we can go forward in a meaningful way. And so I actually think that this is one of the most important issues of our time that isn't getting the attention that it needs. Hmm. And we we hear, we hear that a lot, don't we? You know, we hear a lot a lot about the pandemic and you know post pandemic and actually the pandemic's really impacted. But in terms of this article and thinking then about um, about 
you know, loneliness. What impact did the article have? And also, where is that? Like you've just said, you know, we need to focus on focus on this. It's it's really important. Um, how do we do that? So I think what the article the article was triggered by the Surgeon General, the U.S. Surgeon General's recent report about loneliness and social disconnection, which I think came from this burgeoning um, interest in this space, as you said, Natasha. Um, but I think what was fascinating was that we've almost given up on workplaces as being drivers of a potential solution for this. And yet it's in their best interest to, to be part of the solution. So if people feel more connected to each other, they're more productive, they're more collaborative, the science tells us that they can be a lot more innovative. So the ways in which we can invest in helping people connect with each other not only helps the individual people, but it helps the collaborative, right? It helps the collective. Um, and so I think it's a it's an important issue that uh, we need to address because we're also living in an age where there's a threat to the way we do our work. You know, we're seeing AI take the place of a lot of different traditionally human-led endeavors. And we don't know. We've got a lot of uncertainty around whether or not those things will enhance our jobs or take over our jobs or fundamentally rewrite our job descriptions, right? So, And you just mentioned that you think workplaces have given up um, on, on trying to drive that solution. Why is that? It's a great question. I don't know whether it's a function of whether they've given up or whether they've never realized how important it was in the first place. I mean, you have some workplaces that really work hard at building a culture, a community, um, an environment of trust and respect and mutual regard. And certainly collaboration and the need for collaboration is playing among the largest roles in workplace activity of, you know, of any time. I just think many workplaces don't know how to do it. They don't know, they don't know what to do to help people work better together. And now they're trying to figure out where people should work, let alone how they work together. And as you mentioned about this disconnection, and you talk about disconnection in your article, and it costs businesses 154 billion pounds a year, which is just the dollars. Dollars, sorry. Um, okay. Well that you are. <laughs> um it's just it's a normal figure. It is. Yeah, absolutely. And and so they use they lose that sort of number through absenteeism and you know untold productivity loss. So what what should companies be doing to try and support their employees more? So I, I think you have to make it, it takes an effort, right? Um I think there's a way in which we just assume that we hire somebody and they're gonna come on board and they're gonna be able to do everything they need to do and we can sort of let them be. You know, we might teach them how to operate a machine or we may give them some learning and development around a particular skill, but we basically just let them be. Most organizations don't give people time to actually develop the relationships that ultimately turn out to help both them and the organization. And I know this because this is the work that I've been doing for the last um, decade plus, right, is been really working with teams at all levels of all different kinds of organizations to say, what can happen if you can take an hour and you can connect with each other at a human level. It's still substantive. It's not happy hour or um, or something like that. But it's really, it's focusing people's brains in a slightly different way. It's letting them address human challenges together. It's letting them find the ways in which they can connect with each other. And it's a really powerful way of building the relationships that then enable them to work better together later, right? When they are facing a challenge together from work. So I think that's one of the things that companies really need to do is to find ways to enable people to 
engage with each other. You know, in that article, um, Julie, I, I talked about a, a study that was done um, by a group of scientists at MIT, and they were engaged by what was then the Bank of America to look at their call centers and to look at their call center productivity. And so they outfitted people with these little badges that they called sociometers that would measure not only how many interactions they had with other people, but also the mood, the, the quality of their voice, the timbre of their voice, so that they could get a sense of how deep these relations, these conversations were. It wasn't just a passing hello in the hallway. It was a stop to actually have a discussion. And what they discovered was that the people who spent more time away from the phone and engaging with each other in this call center ultimately had better, better results when they were on the phone. They were more engaging with people. They had better call um, uh, ratings. You know, that's the, the sort of gold standard in a call center is how your customers rate your support. And they were fundamentally happier more engaged employees as a result. And so when they actually structured work time so that more people could take breaks together, they saw that they not only were able to spread that out among more people within their call center network, but they actually realized productivity gains because people were more effective when they'd had time to feel like, okay, I'm not in this all by myself. I, I have peers around me. There are people I can ask. There are people I can call. I feel like part of something. Of course, it's going to make us feel better and more productive. And so thinking then um, about, and, and I think you alluded to it, but I don't think we were particularly explicit, was around, you know, where we're working. So, you know, we've gone from pre-pandemic where, you know, it was a lot of presenteeism. If, if we're honest, you know, people needed to be in an office five days a week. We then got to the pandemic and people suddenly realized that they could do their jobs from home. Um, and now we're kind of back into this new future world where we're I think if honest I think people are still wanting to go back to the five days but there's still a no 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 I'm not saying I'm not saying I want to what I'm saying is I think there's we could say people okay I think there are some people I think that okay I'll say there are some people Dr Julie's had a hard day so (laughs) she's uh she's on she's ready to disagree but I think you know, I think there is there are some people that certainly want to go back to five days in an office, minimum three. Some people. Um, it's a really small number. Sorry. Uh, well, I from from the the people and organizations that I've spoken to, that is becoming more and more of a a mandate so that's the, being maybe out it's mandated, but maybe people don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is organizations are wanting people to to be back in in that at that frequency, and. And people are hooking into the fact that that will kind of fix some of the loneliness and cultural pieces by being present in an office. And I just wonder, what is the the big difference of kind of pre-pandemic, post-pandemic and between and, and linking back in then to loneliness? And was there a big shift? Is, is there anything we've lost from pre-pandemic that we should we should look back to or? Yeah, I guess. And the impact, I suppose. You know, I think it's so funny. I think we've mythologized a lot of what happened before the pandemic. You know, I was uh, I was chatting with somebody who was talking about how powerful it was, how much he learned when he bumped into people at the water cooler, right? Well, how much time did people spend at the water cooler? <laughs> and there's this, the water cooler has become this like Oracle Adelphi or something <laughs> that we talk about now because we don't have one anymore, you know? Um, I think this has always been a problem. I think we've never given people 
or most organizations have never given people a real fundamental chance to say how much does how we get along derive the way we do our work. I think the pandemic, of course, made it a lot worse. And now with this return to work um, kind of mandates or not mandates and the fact that everybody's a little bit confused and that there are some very traditional folks who are saying this is the only way to work. And then there are the people I would think of maybe as more flexibilists who are saying, no, we haven't invented the right way to work yet. But what the pandemic taught us was that there are more possibilities than we realized. Um, it just means that the effort, this has to be an intentional effort on companies' parts. It's not just an extra. And I think a big piece of social connection, and it ties very closely to the way we think about diversity and inclusion too, is that we have to deliberately include voices. We have to deliberately include other ways of thinking in order for us to be able to take advantage of the entire mosaic of experiences and expertise that reside in any one organization. And it may come mm -hmm. from diversity of you know, racial background, gender background, religious background, ethnic background, but it also comes from the fact that we're all different people with something to offer. And if we can forge the connections and unlock some of the wisdom that resides between us, then we can do ourselves and our organizations a lot of good. And at the, at the core, I think that's the the key. And we've just, we're at a place where everything's a little bit harder because we haven't figured out what tomorrow is going to look like. I hope that answered your question. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I, it was I'm a very vague um, question, obviously interrupted by Dr. Julie, but it did. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's vague in a way because we are all hoping to have that crystal ball, right? To figure out mm. what is the, you know, is three days the right mix? Is two days the right mix? Is it five days? Yeah. When I first started practicing law many, many years ago, seven days a week was the right mix for the most employers. And you, you you might get off on Sunday if you got everything done on Saturday. Well, we know that that's not acceptable anymore, right? So um, it changes. And, and in your article, you there's three things that you say socially connected employees are. So we, we've touched on that they're more productive. You also say that they're more innovative and create smarter teams. Could um, you just expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you think about what, and I'll take innovation first, if you think about what innovation really is, it's a mashup of things that have come before, right? So almost every new thing is literally a mix of different other inventions, things that have existed, things that don't work quite as well as we think that they should, and then we come up with a new way of doing it. But very little innovation really happens, contrary to the romantic notions that we have inside one particular brain, right? We tend to innovate as human beings because we live in community, right? And we're culturally adapted to innovate together. That's why that's one of the things that separates us from the other primates. Um, and there's a lot of research around this, how human beings have evolved as much as they have because they work together to develop ways of doing things in an easier way, right? Which is really the, the notion of innovation. So if you want to have an innovative organization, then you need an organization, and there's scientific research that supports this, where each person understands or knows what other people's strengths are so that you can begin to say, ah, here's an interesting idea. And if I come together with Natasha and with Julie, the three of us with the diversity of our experiences can really do something with this. I can't do it alone. Julie might not be able to do it alone, but the three of us together can do something really powerful with it. And I think that the core of innovation in reality is the more we can work together 
and bring diverse perspectives, the faster we can be at coming up with new ideas that really help change the world. Um, and there's this idea called absorptive capacity. It's a very wonky scientific sort of name, but it's been in the academic literature since the early 90s. We haven't translated it well into the business world, but basically what it says is we need to know each other's strengths. We need to understand it. We need to be able to cross-communicate at a peer-to-peer -peer level for a company to be able to really leverage um, new information and new learnings in ways that allow them to grow. And, and when you talk about the, the social connection there, um, you also talk about that, that you create those moments of meaning, which are um, sort of aligned with purpose and belonging. And, and the article talks about trust at work, and, and that makes us think about psychological safety and how important that is. Yeah. Psychological safety is huge because I think if you think about working together and coming up with a good solution for any problem, whether it's an existing problem or the you know potential solving of something new, that we will never get our best ideas if we don't feel safe to speak up and disagree with people, right? And disagreement is huge. And it's interesting in the work that I do, um, bringing people together to build these social connections, we do it around a set of five skills where we really want to model and help people practice listening with humility, asking better questions, challenging their assumptions, disagreeing with respect and without retribution, and fundamentally widening the circle of empathy. And that disagreement piece, which we all seek to avoid, because after all, conflict is nothing if it's not uncomfortable, um, that, that disagreement piece is one of the most important drivers of a healthy workplace, because it enables people to be able to speak up and show you when something is wrong or to point something out that maybe a leader doesn't see or a colleague doesn't see. And it, it all resides in psychological safety. And psychological safety is not about having a lovely environment where people are really nice to each other. It's about having an environment where, you know, I can speak my truth and you give me the benefit of the mm -hmm. doubt. You know that we're in this together and you may not like what I say, but it's going to help us come up with something better together. I love that about psychological safety because we, we talk about that a lot and um, it's not a fluffy thing. It's not everybody being kind and nice to each other. It's, it's. Well, you're never kind well, and nice. I, I you, but... but I try to, <laughs> I think it's, you know, very touchy mood Saturday. <laughs> I'm just I'm, I'm mirroring what I was receiving. I'm joking. I'm joking. No, I think it's important because psychological safety can be termed as you know one of our new buzzwords and yeah, you know, definitely. Like just talk about you know this is what DNI people talk about now and you know and people have got a bit of a downer on psychological safety, but it's a really key component and I think you you relate it to loneliness really really well actually and it's sometimes I don't think that link is made enough. Hmm. I agree. I agree. You know, because loneliness is so linked to all the ways in which we work together and the ways in which we need to feel that the world is willing to hear and honor our contribution, even if they don't agree, right? I mean, we don't, none of us has a perfect idea every single day, but but we tend to shut out a lot of voices in most workplaces. We, you know, we have this idea of, well, this person occupies this role, so they're, they know what they're talking about, but we don't think about the people who do the day in and day out and how much they have to offer. And if we can create the environment where they feel safe to speak up to their boss's boss's boss, um, they, you know, we have a much better way to kind of keep a finger on the pulse of what's really happening. Mm -hmm. And, and so, 
So that's interesting that you say about, you know, you don't have to agree. Have you got any further thoughts on, on how you can disagree in a in an inclusive in a really true inclusive environment? How how do you approach disagreement? You know, it's interesting. I think it's always tricky, right? Because it takes practice. Um, and I think we give people very little chance to practice in a safe space so that they then can disagree in a space that matters. Right. Um, I always say we we would never ask a sports team to play without practicing, but we ask business teams to do that all the time. Right. We, you know, just go and you'll fix things as you need to. It's a little bit like trying to change the wheels on a moving bus. It, it doesn't make That's sense. a brilliant analogy. It's fantastic. <laughs> really good. So it just doesn't make sense. But I so I do think you have to practice and it's going to be awkward. Right. I think. But I do think that there are pages that you can take from things like improv where the focus is always on the yes and, right? So if you say to people, we're going to offer all kinds of ideas and you don't have to agree with somebody, but you can't shut down their idea in order to bring out yours. You have to think about, okay, but here's another way to think about this. Um, And also the words I disagree have to be somehow decoupled from this sting, you know? Um, We have a a company that we've done a lot of work with over the years and their CEO said that when they got together and they practiced, and Reflection Point practices in a completely safe, non-risk sort of way because we do facilitated discussions of short stories with teams and in workplaces where you can really grapple with human issues, but they're not the human issues that are on the table at work right now. So you can get into some really meaningful spaces. And then you say, all right, I know this person. I trust them. I see how they think. Now I think we can disagree a little bit more and really come to a better solution together. So that's where the social connection piece really comes to the fore. But this idea of practicing to separate your ego from your idea, right? We aren't mm-hmm. the, the the sum total of all of our ideas, and yet we are so caught up in them right now. And we're living in a world that's so polarized that we're afraid for somebody to say, no, 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 you're wrong. But it's okay to be wrong. And I think if we can practice accepting that somebody can build on our idea and not necessarily use it exactly fully formed the way we've got it, then um, then we're in a better place. So- I think the, the the single word answer to your question, Julie, is the only way to learn how to disagree effectively is to practice doing it in a way that uh, makes you realize that it's okay to do it and you'll live to see the next day. I think that's a great point. And I like, I, I like what you said in terms of you wouldn't expect a sports team to win without practicing. And, mm-hmm. and if we link that back to uh, in why we're here to talk about loneliness, is there or are there any sort of um, – strategies or tactics that you can give maybe CEOs or or anybody listening um uh, sort of examples of how they can practice to be to, to combat loneliness in the workplace yeah so um so one one way that we engage people to practice is by inviting them into groups where they can have a discussion we offer a short story we have a facilitator and they have a discussion around themes that are related, but not directly related to what they do. It gives them a chance to sort of compare notes to get to know each other. So that's one way to do it. But that's certainly by no stretch, the only way to do it. I think if leaders can find ways for their teams to get together, to um, to be with each other in non-pressured, but still substantive ways, to allow them to engage with each other as individuals, but not necessarily constantly be focused on the collective agenda, you know, that I think it gives people a chance to 
see that there are people around them that make sense. So it's hard when people aren't working together, but there are ways that you can get together on Zoom and talk about things. I think people can listen to a podcast like yours and discuss it. They can uh, go to a movie and and have a conversation. They can pick up a theme from, um, you know, from the news or from philosophy or from, you know, any number of different sources, but where you can invite people to see each other in a slightly different light than the light that's shaped by the role they play in the organization that you share. I think it goes a long way to helping people feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves, right? It's not, it's not, it goes adjacent to the purpose. So we together on this team have a purpose to do X, but we are also aligned because we have this wealth or this um, breadth of skills and talents and perspectives that, you know, make us come to work and feel like we're part of something that we enjoy every day. And I think that that's a good thing, not a bad thing. I think people forget that part of it, but it helps the first part. The common purpose helps when you know who the common is. I like what you say there to kind of see, help see see each other in a different light. And I think, you know, one of the this this podcast is focused on loneliness in the workplace and so you know thinking about loneliness when I was sat thinking about this as a topic actually there's quite a lot of stigma I think still around loneliness and I think for people to admit to being lonely I feel as though you know when we talk about mental health I feel as though like we've done a lot of awareness raising I feel like there's a lot of discussion around you know people maybe not having um a day where they their mental health feels so good um, but I really feel as though like loneliness is probably that one thing that's really been like almost missed, if anything, because of the because of the stigma, you know, it feels as though loneliness is a sign of personal weakness or lack of social skills. Um, whereas actually we know that in reality there's lots of other kind of factors that play into it. But yeah, I just I wondered what your thoughts were around that. I think you're absolutely right. I think we've pathologized so many things that it makes everything feel like a mental health problem when sometimes it's really you're having a good day or you're not having a good day. You know, you have a day you come to Mm -hmm. work with a headache. It doesn't mean you're physically um, impaired. It just means you have a headache, right? Um, I was reading an interesting article that said sometimes burnout isn't burnout. It's just I'm exhausted or I'm not feeling my full self today. And I, because we love buzzwords, we love to pathologize things and make them part of something much bigger. We've taken potentially, and I think you're right, Natasha, we've potentially taken loneliness and wrapped it up in this mental health idea. And yes, it's about our mental well-being, but if 82% of people have felt lonely at work, it doesn't mean we all have mental health issues, right? So I think, and I'm no expert, so let me, let me make that clear. I am not a mental health expert at all. But I do worry that we lump things together in ways that don't always make sense. I think you're right. Um, we, all, we ask all of our guests uh, a final question, um, and that is around um, action. We always say inclusion is an action. Um, so we'd like to ask you, do you have a top tip or an inclusive action that you'd like um, our listeners to, as they leave this episode, to think about and to maybe work on? I do. I think that my top tip is probably feels very simple on its face and a little hard to do sometimes. And that is that if every leader could ask a curious question of somebody that they work with, right? Ask just, how are you? What do you think? How are things going? If there were one thing we could do that would make your life easier, what would it be? I mean, an open-ended question that 
signals a real true curiosity and a desire to learn the answer, right? It's not a, how are you? Or isn't the weather nice today? It's really something where somebody has to stop and say, this person wants to know what I think, and I'm going to offer my point of view. And then if you ask the question, you need to stop and listen, right? So I think this is the hard part. Mm -hmm. We are living in these times where we all feel like we're on a treadmill and we need to pause and we need to ask a question and we need to be ready to learn, right? Um, and I think that if if we could all take a few extra minutes to do that, it would be amazing how much more included people would feel, how much more valued they would feel, and I think how many more good ideas would surface that would actually benefit all of us. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, we've loved today's episode. You even got you even got um me and Dr. Julie um to uh to what's the word? Spa. <laughs> Disagree. <laughs> Disagree. <laughs> we are actually. <laughs> Yes, the good thing. It's a good thing. Yes. Um, we, we've been quite uh, on the same page, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much, Anne. It's been fa- fabulous talking to you. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. You can find us on Twitter. Our handles are in the show notes below. And if you've liked what you've heard, please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes automatically. Thanks for listening.